encourage you to pray for uh, our, our youth group, especially. You know, uh, no matter how you cut it, no matter how much you say this is this is God's will. We know most of us know that. And if you're an adult, you're probably mature enough to understand that. Uh, but sometimes that's hard because sometimes, you know, a young person, if they're not careful, um, you know, they can really admire, and and then their identity, if they're not careful, can get kind of caught up in a person. But we all know that's not what it's about. Now we know that, okay. Um, but we also know that uh, we have some exciting things ahead, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you what we are planning for them uh, coming up, and uh, so the Lord's good. Amen. All right, well, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're in verse 8 tonight. We left off last time, verse 7, last time I was here. And uh, verse number 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. This is God's word. Tonight I want to label the message, Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's what Paul tells us to do in verse 8. Remember Jesus. Last year, I think it was, during one of the heights of the racial tension in our country, I felt it was important to teach my kids a little bit about segregation, history, and what happened in our country that young people certainly would not have much understanding of. So I felt like the best way for me to do that was to show them a movie. And the movie that I decided to show them was Remember the Titans. Now, how many of you have ever seen Remember the Titans? It's been labeled by many one of the greatest sports films ever. And I agree, I've seen it probably a dozen times. Uh, and most of you have seen it, so you know the story. It's Set in 1971 at, at uh, T.C. William High School in Alexandria, Virginia, which up to 1971 was segregated, uh, an all-white school. And through the pressure of the newfound uh, social things and, and all the laws, they were forced um, to integrate. And so part of this integration of black and white people into this school took place through the football team. And the football team was coached by a legendary Hall of Fame football coach who was really just a super well-known and respected uh, coach. And then, of course, they brought in Coach Boone, 
and he was from the black school, and he ended up becoming the head coach, and of course the former head coach became the assistant coach, and it's just this drama. Uh, no doubt, my favorite part is the uh, football camp uh, out at uh, the, cem- the cemetery in the, I think it was Gettysburg, I think if I got it right, where they went, and, and where God, uh, excuse me, the, 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 the coach was able to bring them together in unity. It is a powerful story, it's based on a true story. Much of the story is true. I'm sure there's much fabrication in the story as well. But the movie in and of itself was given, the title is really intriguing to me. Remember the Titans, and it's, there's a purpose to that. The purpose was that when there are racial tensions, when there are things that, struggle, that we struggle with and are bothered by, we need to remember what happened with this particular group of young people and how they were able to come together, regardless of their skin color. I've been very vocal about such things in our church, and tonight that's not what I'm speaking on. I only use that illustration to illustrate what Paul does in this text. What Paul does is he says to him, after telling him in verses 1 through 7 what Timothy's responsibility was. Remember, Timothy is now the new leader. Paul is in prison. Paul's about to die. Paul has laid out the expectations for Timothy and how hard it's going to be for him. And he just has described his role as a teacher, as a soldier, as an athlete, and as a farmer. And all of which require dedication and hard work. All of which are rewarding in their own respect. All of which are not easy career paths to take. And Paul uses that to illustrate life in the ministry. We already know from chapter 1 that Timothy was already struggling. He was already fearful, he had uncertainties that he was dealing with, and we know that this other call to hold fast to sound words, he's seen other men leaving the gospel ministry and leaving the faith. Now he's been charged with this overwhelming task of, 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 of the farmer and the, and the, and the teacher and, and uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the athlete and so on and so forth, and now... In the next set of verses, verse 8 through 13, Paul's going to come right behind that strong admonition and he's going to give him some encouragement. And what is the encouragement? Well, the encouragement is based on Jesus Christ and the resurrection. I guess if I were to say what is the theme of this section, it would be like this. Since Jesus Christ is alive from the dead, we can endure all things. This is the message of verses 8 through 13. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And from that, Paul is going to unfold for us what I believe to be three principles about how looking to the resurrection of Jesus encourages us to stay true and faithful to whatever God's called us to do. So number one, we see in verses 8 and 9, the resurrection of Jesus brings hope in the midst of affliction. And here's what's going to happen. Paul is going to tie together what, what, what the resurrection of Jesus brought, uh, brought Jesus from, the crucifixion, the cross. And he's going to tie it together with the ministry that Paul himself has, a ministry of affliction. And the ultimate hope that you and I have is no matter what we are facing in this life and no matter how difficult it is, in the end, there's a resurrection. So when it's all said and done, we get to go home. I've been listening to a song all day, like on repeat. I started 
early this morning, and I just keep listening to it over and over again. It's called Almost Home. I would encourage you to go find it. It's written by Matt Balswell and Matt Papa. It's on their new album, uh, it, it, and that's, that's the title of the album, Almost Home. The title track of the album, uh, the, 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 the opening line is this, do not drop your anchor here. We're almost home. And every statement of the song ends with that line, we're almost home. And it just, man, it, excuse me, it just builds and ends in this crescendo of we can always endure. We can always make it through. We can always stay faithful. Why? Because we're almost home. That is what the resurrection secured for you, friend. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guaranteed eternal life. The ultimate end for every believer, the end of the struggle, the end of the hard journey. And for every one of us, it is hard. And for every one of us, there are different and varying degrees of hard, right? Don't you look at some people and be like, how in the world? How do they go through that? How do they endure that? Somebody like Joni Erickson Tata. How does she deal with that? The quadriplegic uh, since she was a teenager. The cancer. The lifelong struggle. The battle. And some of us have been there. We've been through loss. We've been through struggle. Some, in our opinion, greater than others. But here's the deal. Jesus went through the greatest road of suffering. A road of suffering that we cannot imagine. He literally blazed a trail through hell itself. And on the other side, he was resurrected from the dead. This is the hope of the church. Look at the text here. It says, remember that Jesus Christ, and I love this little phrase here, of the seed of David. Now you may say, what, the, what does David have to do with the resurrection? Let me give you one word. You ready? Promise. What does David, King David, have to do with Jesus raising from the dead? Well, you go to the, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and there God makes a promise to David. And the promise to David is this, there will never cease to be someone who will sit on your throne. Now think about this just for a minute. How could it be that an earthly kingdom will never be vacated? And the answer is that that earthly kingdom <coughs> will be occupied by a non-earthly king. That the only, come on, that the only way for a king to reign forever is that that king has got to live forever. Last time I checked, no other earthly king that I'm aware of has been able to claim that he's been there forever except one. And that's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords who occupies the throne of David forever. Why? Because he rose from the dead. So <clears throat> one of the cool things about this verse is that the resurrection... And the encouragement for us is that it is rooted in a promise. I'm going to give this to you and no one can take it away. Well, how encouraging is that? You have something that no one can take away. There's not a lot of stuff like that in life. You can have the nicest house in Jacksonville. Somebody's going to take it away one day. You can have heirlooms, and you can have jewelry, and you can have money, and you can have a lot of it. Somebody is going to take it away one day. 
But how many of you are glad for an inheritance that is incorruptible, that is undefiled, and that fades not away, secured for you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So what does Paul say? Look, just keep on marching forward because we're almost home thanks to Jesus. And then look at verse 9 as Paul ties this into his own life, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer. This, of course, is speaking of Paul's persecution. <coughs> it says here, as an evildoer. It, it wasn't that Paul was an evildoer. It is that Paul was treated like an evildoer. Did you see that? So, Paul was treated like a criminal. I mean, he's in jail, after all. He even says that later in the verse. I am in jail. And, and so, I have been placed in jail being treated like a criminal. But because Jesus is alive from the grave, I, like Jesus, am willing to follow Jesus into something as brutal as an unjust death. Let's just call it what it was. Wasn't Jesus' death unjust? Well, let me ask you a question. What crimes did Jesus commit that put him on the cross? What things did he do wrong that enabled people to kill him? Answer, nothing. Why was Paul in prison? Answer, nothing. He did nothing wrong. He preached the gospel. He followed God. And yet he was treated like an evildoer. Let me ask you a question. Why do we expect in this culture, any culture for that matter, to be treated like anything else other than an evildoer if we are followers of Jesus? Why do we act like we're supposed to be celebrities? Or that we're supposed to be appreciated or liked or applauded? For what we're doing. This is not the path of the New Testament as we've said over and over and over again in this study. And yet, look what Paul says at the end of verse number 9. <coughs> Excuse me. I was, I was treated uh, with trouble as an evildoer. Watch this. Even to the point of chains. Of course, he's talking about literally being locked up in chains. He's in jail. This is how far it went. But look at this next phrase. However... The word of God is not bound. Nothing can stop your ministry for God because your mission cannot fail. Your destination cannot be missed. Your reward cannot be robbed or ruined. Furthermore, even while we're here, right here, right now, no matter what anybody ever does to any individual preacher or Christian, understand this. Nobody can ever stop what God is doing in this world. That is impossible. Even if they try to lock us up, even like John the Baptist. I was thinking about him today. John the Baptist, even John the Baptist. What, what did Herod do to John the Baptist whenever John preached about his sin of adultery and incest? What did he do? He cut his head off. Why? Cut his voice off. End it. Well, friend, listen, his voice still rings loud and clear. They have been trying to stop, shut up, burn up, ban the Bible for decades and decades and decades, and they never can and they never will. Why? Because you can't bind God's word. It is stamped on the heart of his people. It is impressed on a thousand printing presses. It is smuggled in and duplicated and replicated around the world. World without end, no one can stop the word of God. So Paul's saying, no, my... No matter what they do to me, they can't stop me. Isn't that a blessing? So number one, the resurrection of Jesus <coughs> brings hope in the midst of affliction. Number two, 
the resurrection of Jesus inspires endurance for the sake of the church. Now let me read you a verse that will make some of you very, very nervous. It's a little confusing. It's a little bit difficult. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, verse number 10 is probably not your favorite verse you've ever studied, but it is a, it's a challenging verse theologically. But let's read it and let's deal with it, okay? Verse 10. Therefore, based upon what I just said, I, Paul, endure all things, he's using that word endurance again, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal, with eternal glory. So let me break down some of the words here and then I'll, I'll try, to, try to sort through this for you. First of all, the word endure is the word hupomino in Greek. It means, it means to remain under. And what Paul is saying here is because of the resurrection, because I've remembered Jesus, I am willing to endure, stay under a load. I'm willing to carry a load with me and I'm going to keep moving with the load on me because I am doing this for the sake of the church, okay? Then he says, for the elect's sake, as many of you would know, this word means to be chosen or to be picked out, okay? Now, before I get into this, let me just explain something to you about the doctrine of election in the Bible. It is in the Bible, so don't try to explain it away, but do whatever you can to understand it in its fullest meaning and context in the Bible. The word itself means to be picked or to be chosen. Election is when God calls his people those who have been chosen out or selected by him. So let me make several statements here, and I hope to button this up for you, okay? I personally believe when I study all of the Bible and I synthesize everything that the Bible says about election, I believe that the word election is two things. It is, first of all, a corporate truth. When you read about election in the Bible, the elect's sake, that is not talking about an individual. That's talking about a group of people. For I'm doing this for those people who have been chosen by God. In fact, sometimes we say this of Israel, right? They are God's what? Chosen people. It's the same word. In fact, Israel is called the elect of God in the Old Testament. And it's not speaking about one individual person. Okay? The second thing I want you to know about election is this. Without exception... Maybe one time in the Bible, maybe one time in the Bible, Acts 13. But without exception other than that, the truth is that when you hear, read the word elect in the Bible, you're not only talking about a group of people, you're also talking about people who are already saved. Okay? Here's what you don't read in the Bible. You don't read in the Bible God talking about people uh, who are not Christians being those who are chosen. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not a chosen one. So this is where the arguments get difficult. Because there, there are some people, as you probably know by now, that actually believe that before the foundation of the world, God actually, uh, without any kind of other than his just sovereign will, chose a group of people to be saved. And then, then when he came to die on the cross... That death on the cross was only sufficient for those people that he had already chosen to be saved. Now, if you happen to believe that, it's probably because you've read a verse like Matthew 1.21 where it says he will save his people from their sins. Or a verse like John 10 verse 11 that says he laid down his life for his what? For his sheep. So the argument then is that God only died for those people he had already chosen. 
if that argument is true, listen very carefully. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So if John 10.11 says Christ died for the sheep means Christ died only for the sheep, then Galatians 2.20 must mean Christ only died for Paul. It's terrible argumentation. While there may be some verses that say that, and no doubt that's true. If you're Paul, he died for you. If you're a sheep, he died for you. If you're a part of the church, Ephesians 5.25, he died for you. But isn't it also true that he died for all the sins of all the world? That argument is unquestionable in the Bible. In fact, the bulk, the volume of scripture that says that Christ died for the entire world is overwhelming. Hebrews 2.9, he tasted death for every man. Uh, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, uh, Christ, uh, my little children, I write these things to you that you do not sin. But if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave himself for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how in the world you get around that. First Peter even goes, or Second Peter, excuse me, goes so far to say that Christ even bought people who denied him ultimately. So, did Christ die for only the elect? No. Christ died for all persons. But his atoning death becomes effective only when it is accepted by an individual. If you don't believe what I just said, then you believe in universalism. God died for everybody so everybody's saved. That's not true. God provided salvation for everybody on the cross, but it is only effective when that person believes on him. Listen, folks, you say, well, I just don't understand that. Listen, I don't understand electricity, but I don't sit in the dark. Amen? Lord, help me. I don't understand anything. I remember one time I was sitting at a... My wife and I, I don't know, we were in Texas. We were this back in the days we were traveling evangelism. We pulled up into this um, Sonic. We were getting a Sonic drink, and, and there was a sign, you know, right there. Like, where you park, and there's a sign right in front of you. And it said, Sonic, home of 164,000 flavor combinations. And I was just sitting there going, <laughs> and I looked at Angie, I said, <clears throat> well, how in the world, how they figure it out? Kale's looking at me like, yeah, well, I know that. Well, I, I, I was just going, I mean, I was just sitting there going. So I got to preach it that night, and I said, I don't understand. I don't understand how people could do that. I don't understand how a Christian could live that way. I don't understand that anymore, and I can understand how Sonic can have 164,000 flavor combinations with 12 sodas and 14 syrups. And I just blasted it off and went on preaching. I got done preaching. This dude walks right up to me. He was, no joke, he was literally a rocket scientist at NASA. And he walked up to me and said, I know how they do that. And he busted out this math equation. I mean, he scribbled it. He did it while I was preaching. He evidently didn't listen to what I was saying. But he, he, he did this math equation. He said, he said Brian, he starts talking like, man, please, please, simple English. He said, okay, okay, if you have five men who have the possibility of becoming a deacon and you only have three spots for deacons, how many different combinations of those men could you get that would provide for you the three deacons? I said, oh, yeah, I understand that. He says, the same problem. He says, just on a much bigger scale. And I said, oh, okay. So anyways, the point is, <coughs> the point is, 
You might look at election and say, wait a second, are you telling me that God chose people in Christ before the foundation of the world? Yes. Not arbitrarily, not against their will, not in exclusion to others. Yeah. Okay, okay. Do you think then that we have a choice in the matter? Of course. Yes. You say, well, you want to explain that? No. And let me explain to you why I'm not going to explain that. It's called a sovereign mystery. If you knew everything there was to know about God and you could figure it all out, you'd be God, not him. And so he's not looking to give up that position anytime soon, so you may as well stop trying. What do you do when you don't understand something like this? Something that short-circuits your brain. You do two things. One, you lean in on what you know. What do I know? He died for everybody. Everybody can be saved. Everybody gets saved the same way. Everybody needs Jesus. That's what I know. What I also know is God's awesome and he's big and he's powerful and he can save anybody. And he provided that means for everybody. I know that. So I I lean in on what I know and then I rest in what I don't know. Do I know all the ins and outs? No, but what I don't know, here's what I rest in. A God that loves me. A God who's wise. A God who's powerful. A God who's way beyond my wildest imagination. A God whose plans are awesome and amazing and big. I don't understand all that, but I can trust him. And rejoice in the fact that no matter how you cut it, I'm one of those. I believe there's a welcome mat in front of the doorstep of heaven that says, whosoever will, let him come. And then when you enter in the gates of heaven one day, you might just see a big old, a big old plaque that says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I don't know how it works, but I just know this. I know that we are supposed to preach the gospel. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to see people get saved. We're supposed to know that we are saved ourselves. And then as somebody who's in the ministry, we should be laboring fervently for those people. Watch this. There's another tricky part of this verse that they may obtain salvation. It sounds like you're almost talking like, is this something you do? Okay, I want you to listen to me. I want you to follow me. I've already said this multiple times in our studies of the Bible, but you need to get this, never forget this. Salvation is spoken of in three senses in the Bible. Past, present, and future. Okay, there's progressive sanctification. Right now there's past sanctification, that's the moment you got saved, and then there's eternal sanctification, that's also called glorification. These things, are watch this, they're spoken of interchangeably in the Bible. Is your salvation something that happened in the past? Yep. Is your salvation something that's happening right now? Yes. You're in Christ. You didn't go to Christ, you got in Christ. You're still there. He started a work in you, but he's still doing a work in you. And then one day, you will be glorified with him forever. So don't misunderstand. Don't get confused every time you see the word salvation. Don't start short-circuiting. Are you anybody? No, this is obviously talking about glorification. You want to know how I know that? Look at the end of the verse. With eternal glory. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about this. In this difficult journey of Christianity, with all the hardships that people go through, I'm going to give my life and stay at it for the sake of those people who are on the same journey that I'm on. By the way, let me tell you one thing that's very clear from the Bible also. Salvation is not some one, two, three, pray after me, 
see you later, never to be uh, seen again kind of thing. The Bible assumes that if you got saved, you stay saved, and you will always be saved. And I'm not talking about just a security that comes through the falsehood of some profession that didn't mean it. I'm talking about somebody who literally gets born again. Their life is filled with God, transformed by his power, and culminates in glory. Not somebody that made a decision one day when they were five and nothing else happened in their life until they died. And then I've got to somehow stand over their casket and try to convince their friends and family that they were actually Christians. You don't see American Christianity in the Bible. That's what I will tell you. I give no assurance to somebody who grew up in Jacksonville got saved when they were five, and the FBI couldn't find him as far as church goes the rest of their life. Somebody better help me up here. There's no assurance for that in the Bible. None. Read 2 Peter chapter 1. You are to be adding to your faith virtue. Listen, guys, the day you get saved is not the ultimate end. It's the beginning. When you get saved, that's the starting block. And this is our job. This is the church's job. To preach the Bible, labor in the ministry, work with people so that they understand this. To (coughs) encourage them along the way that salvation was the beginning. Why do we baptize people? Because baptism is the next thing you do after you get saved. And then we enroll them in discipleship 101, 201, 301. A class, a fellowship, a group, whatever. Why? Because there's more to this. It's not like you're definitely saved. There's no question about that. But your salvation means that there's more coming. There's growth that's coming. It's a life, not a decision. And and I know people struggle with this. There's a lot of questions about that too. But let me just stop and say, that's what the Bible says. So there you go. That's what the Bible says. You may not like it. You may not have grown up with it. And that's fine. Why 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 do you think a town like this, excuse me, why do you think a town like this is filled up with people who went to a church when they were kids? Does anybody listen to me out there? I'm sorry. Junior church is not the ultimate aim. A life of following Jesus is the product of genuine salvation. Period. Okay? I'm going to leave that right now because I'm not sure if you like that. That's okay. All right, so let's go to number three. And this is really, this is good here because number three ends with some encouragement. This has kind of been a little heavy, so let's get a little happy now, okay? All right, verse number 11. This is a faithful saying. Now, what you see here is you see a paragraph of literally a hymn, an H-Y-M-N-M. Now, there's no reference for this. This is not found somewhere in the Bible. But when Paul says this is a faithful saying and then he quotes this hymn, this poem, if you will, more than likely this would have been a standard hymn sung in churches in the first century. Now look, uh, the point I want to make is this, the resurrection of Jesus secures confidence in the promises of God. This is a faithful saying. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us four promises in this hymn. And the first two are promises wrapped in paradox. What is the first one? If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Here's the first promise. You die in Jesus and you're going to live forever. The second promise comes in verse 12. If we endure, we shall reign with him. We're going to make it. We're almost home. There is a glory after the suffering. 
What is Paul saying? Romans 8. He says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that shall follow. Boy, it'll do you good to think about what's coming. The reward, the reigning, the ruling. Hey, one day, friend, listen, he wins and we win with him. Oh, and then I love this. Look at this. This is strong. Here's a, by the way, this is a promise. If we deny him, he'll deny us. People that are unwilling to identify with Christ, proclaim his name, identify with their salvation in him, deny him, he'll deny you. Oh, wait a second. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I threaten that with my kids all the time. <laughs> my daughter will say something stupid. I'll say, Adriana, if you ever say something like that in public, I will deny that I know you. <laughs> and that seems to be harsh, but I love this last one. This, I will be honest with you. I think verse 13 may just be one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. I just want you to think with me about what these people were dealing with here. Persecution. People were dying for Christ. There's this sense in which I don't want to ever be ashamed. I don't want to deny him. But there was this fear because this was really hard. It's one thing to say it here when, like, the worst thing that ever happens to me, like, honks a horn at us or something, and we think we ever got persecuted. Now, we're a bunch of sissies, man. These people like literally died for the gospel. And now Paul has just said, if you deny Christ, he's going to die. Can you almost feel that fear wave over this group of people only to be encouraged by the last statement of the hymn? Watch this. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. For those of you that are genuinely Saved. You know God. And you also know that you are weak. And under the right circumstances, you could just, your, your feet could just fall right out from under you. Don't fear. If that's you, even if you falter, he won't. Watch this. Cannot deny himself. What does that mean? If you're a Christian, a genuine believer, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the mark of ownership. You have been stamped and indwelt by God. You are his child immediately. The, uh, 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 I love it. Galatians calls it adoption. Of all things, I just finished another one of those. It stood before a judge, and the judge looked and said, he is now all rights and privileges of being born into the family of Brian and Angie Sams are now bestowed upon Braxton Thomas Sams. You are no longer this name. This is your new name. This is your new family, and you are uh, forever 
bound to care for him while he is a child in your home. The birth certificate got changed. Somebody help me. The birth certificate got changed. The numbers get, his old medical records get expunged and new ones get created. He's a Sam's. I can't do anything about it now. Well, of course I wouldn't want to. I cannot deny myself. He is my son. That's how God feels about you. You are marked. You are indwelt. You are his child. And even when you're on your, even on your very worst day, when your faith is faltering, and you, you'd probably be one that would say, I don't know who Jesus is. Even in that moment, if you're genuinely his child, he will stay faithful because he cannot deny himself. Amen. Let's pray together.